and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it's number 174. And the eagle-eyed, or probably that should be eagle-eared, will know that there wasn't a podcast last week. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and let me explain why. There were two reasons, or excuses, depending on your perspective, and the first was that on Monday I couldn't publish a newsletter because something went wrong in cyberspace. I'm not sure how or what, and even if it was explained, I likely would be none the wiser. So Monday's newsletter became Tuesday, and Tuesday's got bumped to Wednesday, which is normally when the podcast comes out. Reason number two was that I had two interviews set for Monday afternoon, and both of them cancelled on me on Monday morning, leaving me with just one interview, so I figured the easiest thing to do would be to just push it back by a week. I went to another event yesterday, not a huge one, but then it wasn't a million miles away from home as I went to the Scottish Specialty Food Show in Glasgow. I did all the math on whether to drive or take the train, and there were pros and cons for both. In a car, you can listen to whatever you want, leave when you want, park close to the event, and if you buy anything while you're in the city, it's easier to get it home. But then there's the cost of fuel, which is pretty high right now, and in most major cities around the world, parking isn't cheap, and sometimes it's also not easy to find. Money-wise, it's about the same as the train, and I was going to say it's less stressful to take the train, but sometimes when they're late and you're having to switch platforms and there's too many people on the train, then it isn't that pleasant. But anyway, I did opt for the train because it also meant I got to walk a little bit in Glasgow and check out some of the international food stores as well. I didn't see any glass cows, which the city is now famous for, as quite a few commentators from North America decided that Glasgow should be pronounced Glasgow, like they pronounce Moscow. Although we can't really gloat at that one, because in Russian it's pronounced Moskva. But it was nice to be in Scotland's biggest city again, and to go to another event. And, even better, that it didn't rain. Although I could have done without the security guard that said I couldn't film outside without written permission. I asked him about his knowledge of media law as it pertains to filming in a public place, but he seemed to not know anything about that, so I suggested he go away and Google it, and he wandered off mumbling and swearing at me. Funny how they tell you how to be careful filming in places like the UAE, and no one ever asked me to stop filming there. In fact, I did have some security guards come over while I was filming at an event, and they asked me if I wanted them to stop people from walking around behind me. Anyway... I got three interviews from the show, which didn't have a huge dairy content, so that will be on next week's podcast, and I'll be editing those videos sometime over the next couple of weeks as well. On the home front, we got quite a bit of walking in thanks to the great weather, including one of my new favourites, which is an amazing place called Dollar Glen, which kind of sounds like a shady store in a strip mall in the suburbs of a big city. It's a busy week with after-school activities too, and our son gets his first COVID vaccine today, which he's really not looking forward to at all. We seem to be getting pretty blasé about COVID now. I hope it doesn't come back and bite us. Anyway, I should tell you who our guests are this week. We have three conversations with Ian Smith, Sales Director at PFF Group, Dr. Ardeth Morrow, Professor of Epidemiology and Pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and with Wapka Boakama, Senior Manager R&D at Perkin Elmer. 
And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. I know I could have gone through two weeks of news, but we'll just take a look at the news headlines you may have missed over the past seven days. NZMP is set to supply Maypro with probiotics. Friesland Campina and DSM are piloting a methane project on 200 farms in the Netherlands. And Israeli biofood tech startup Wilk has joined Cellular Agriculture Europe as its first cell culture dairy member. Dairy UK held a stronger for longer event. Arla says the current lack of profit in milk is not sustainable as it launched a new five-year growth strategy in the UK. And a Japanese dairy company is the first to use the A2 Inside label. There is a new CEO at Savoncia. A new study looks at the impact of homogenization on human milk-based nutritional products. And we had an interesting special edition newsletter on flavors and colors. And that had 10 articles in it. Byheart has launched a from-scratch infant formula, German cooperative DMK is getting into dairy alternatives, and the Dairy Export Bill was signed at a Wisconsin cheese company. You can read all of these and many more at DairyReporter.com. And so that leads us into the first interview. UK food packaging company PFF Group has installed a £2 million thermoforming system at its Sedgefield site as part of a £4 million investment programme in new process technology for packaging in the dairy industry. To tell us about it is Ian Smith, Sales Director at PFF Group. Okay, well I guess the first question then is if you could tell me a little bit about the background of the company. The company is a a business that was set up privately by a gentleman called uh, Andy Bairstow as many as uh, nearly 30 years ago now, uh, operating out of Keithley in Yorkshire on the outskirts of Bradford in that kind of area. Bronte country, so beautiful, beautiful countryside. And we were established as a thermoforming business, manufacturing packaging initially for display merchandise, so carpet samples, incongruous kind of beginning to a large food manufacturer. But the business grew quite rapidly on the back of Andy's sort of entrepreneurial behaviour and can-do attitude and very quickly moved into the food industry. So it grew to the point where we moved sites a couple of times into what is now the Keithley head office. About, about 2014, 2015, there was an opportunity in the northeast to purchase two businesses, which we did. And we joined those together into what was or what is now the, the Washington site. So we have been two-site operation now for sort of seven or eight years operating thermoforming polypropylene and PET so the Keithley site produces using polyester and the northeast site manufactures using polypropylene polyester is a widely used materials it's the sort of material that you'd find in any of the sort of carbonated soft drinks bottles and as a consequence of that is the readily available sources of recycled material so Keithley produces all of its products with at least sort of 45 percent post-consumer regrind so scrap bottles the northeast site the polypropylene business polypropylene is a little bit more difficult to get hold of recycled content but because of the way we're set up we make sure we, we are recycling all of our internal scrap material so all of our products have at least 35 percent recycled content as well so if anybody's thinking about the packaging tax all of our thermoform products are currently as it currently stands exempt from that the northeast site has traditionally been 
polypropylene thermoforming, so the standard things for protein trays, but also we manufacture a large quantity of uh, standard pots for the dairy industry, so for yogurts and for creams and that sort of thing. We also have, when we acquired those businesses, the skill set that allows us to print. So we have full decoration capabilities. And more recently, we have a hybrid pack system, which we describe as Desto, which is basically card wrap pots, which are widely used in the dairy industry for sort of high-end premium yogurts, both at sort of single-serve scales and also sort of multi-serve scales. So that's pretty much where we are. We're a business that's turning over in excess of £35 million and we're merrily progressing along those lines, working with key customers, trying to build a reputation of service and integrity that we can as a private company offer. Then the then the COVID hit. We had the opportunity using our expertise with the plastics conversion materials handling systems that we have to win a contract with DHSC and NHS now to supply plastic aprons. So over the course of the pandemic, we supplied 360 million articles of PPA and plastic aprons to the, to the NHS. And on the back of that, we have established a health division as well. I think quickly and concisely, we're a plastics business that has grown quickly and with a focused attention on supplying customer needs and responding to opportunities within the marketplace such that we are now turning over something like 45 million pounds worth of top line sales following the recent acquisition of Syrap UK, a competitor of ours back in November. So three site manufacturing company with a two divisions focusing predominantly on packaging, but also with a new string to our bow in terms of health. You mentioned the pots for yogurts. Do you do anything else yes. for dairy or dairy alternative companies? We have pots, but we also have the collation trays that goes with them. So we have a kind of a full service with the printing and the decoration, but also the card wrap pots as well, collation trays to supply. So that's the extent of our standard offer for the dairy industry. However, we do from time to time react on a bespoke basis with certain clients to adapt particular unique pieces for them to operate with. All right. And do you work with sort of small producers and big producers as well? I mean, can you work at both ends of the scale? We try to be agile throughout our supply base. and We're focused on as long as we can add value to it and, and what we produce gives our clients opportunities to add value, then yes. But we operate with both big brand names that everybody knows and is aware of, but also smaller, unique dairies. And I think what we found in that mix is that the kind of premium offer that we have is really well suited to brands. It supports their brand ethos. And we really actively encourage smaller new startups to become the great next thing. So yes, we have a a vast range in terms of the scale of whom we produce all from brand new boutique little dairies all the way up to some of the significant companies that everybody knows and loves in the marketplace. And so what's Impact T? So we have, we mentioned before, the hybrid board Desto packs that we talked about. And that technology is relatively old and established. It's a two-stage process where we manufacture plastic inlets or pots at a kind of a reduced gauge. And then subsequently, we then um, wrap them with a cardboard to provide the branding area. So you have a readily separatable pack. So the cardboard is simple to separate from the plastic, the plastic, and then the board can be recycled. Currently produced in polypropylene, which is appropriate for both dairy, but also for the hot pour, so porridges, noodles, that sort of thing. And all of that was run through this one particular piece of equipment. But as with all kinds of machinery, there's an investment of renewal. 
cycle that you have to undertake. And we'd reached that point with respect to our existing piece of equipment. And typical of PFF, instead of just deciding to replace what we had or update what we had, we looked at what was going on in the marketplace and looked at what we had and decided, well, how can we make what we do better? And how can we make what we do better fit what the market requires? So the first piece on Impact T was to migrate, certainly from the dairy market sector, away from polypropylene into, or at least allow the facility to manufacture with polyester. So you bring in the ability to use post-consumer regrind. So it's the right thing to do. It's what the government is trying to focus our attention on with the plastic packaging tax. But ultimately, you're tapping into a global market that is fully accredited for food contact where PP is struggling still. So let's get into PET. The next step is also to think about well, how we're making this. So the current method is very much a single alleyway, which is a bottleneck by every any other definition within the production process that has a, a relatively finite output and capacity. So how can we make this more efficient? So there's a there's a number of techniques that are in the marketplace, but what we've tried to do with Impact T is to create the same sort of hybrid packaging, but using a far more heavily automated process. So this automated process allows us to almost triple the output of our machines. It allows us to produce it much more efficiently. But one of the key parts of this is that rather than having to produce pots offline, the pots are produced online and in line. So there is no need to double handle the pot and the card. So we no longer have to rely on both parts to be equally strong. We can look to where the strength of the pack actually physically comes from. And what was evident from our testing was that the pot strength comes from the board. So we can make the plastic much lighter. So we're looking at a a pack which the marketplace is ultimately familiar with, but produced in a completely different way, which will enable us as producers to take the plastic content down by as, as much as 30% relative to what you might find in the marketplace and incorporate materials which are more readily recyclable and recycled already. So I guess that will help companies with their carbon footprints and also save them money in taxes. If we look after our own piece, it certainly makes sure that we are minimising any carbon consumption, certainly. There's a reduction in double handling because we're an integrated, vertically integrated producer, including the PET. It means that the material is produced very close to the manufacture of the pots themselves. We're not overshipping. We're producing all at one time. And ultimately, when what we're presenting to the client is, is a lighter, less resource intensive pack that then is subsequently much more readily available and readily recyclable. The latest news was the new thermoforming system. Yes. Um, could you tell me a bit about a little bit about the, the new system and the, the system that has arrived and it arrived about uh, a week and a half ago now and uh, all of my colleagues are currently at the site where it's actually situated are currently uh, engaged in the commissioning of it it's a brand new line for us but it's also a brand new line for the manufacturer themselves this is a a system that there's no other system like it this is the first one anywhere and we feel very 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 close to illig and the team at illig who have helped us develop the system with them they are an exceptional machinery manufacturer if anybody can advocate quality engineering then illig is a company that can do that we kind of set them a challenge. They were producing similar systems with a less arduous objective. And we said to them, well, what about this? Look at the, can we achieve this using the next generation, the next development of that production line? 
better think about it? They said yes. So we've worked hand in glove over the last 18 months, two years to develop this with them. And we're delighted that it's here. The engineers are delighted that they've achieved it. Elite themselves have taken great pride in the completion of the project. And in very short order, we'll be producing products that our clients can trial and select to their market. And what does the new system allow you to do and what are the advantages over not having one i guess <laughs> the new system is designed around creating the new product so impact t is as much this system as it is the product itself without it impact t would not exist without it we would be producing in the I don't want to say old-fashioned way because we're still going to be using the older line, but it allows us to take the technology on further, way beyond where we are currently and way beyond where the marketplace is with regard to the production of this kind of packaging. In terms of sustainability, what are the advantages to having the new system? It's a process that's in line, so it's integrated. So we, it allows for the reduction of plastic content within sort of comparable packs. The conversion of plastic thermoforming is, by definition, a heat process. So that allows for a reduction in heat consumption. The handling processes are all automated. The output is far more efficient in terms of products per minute. It allows for a much denser level of productivity, which is, a again, more efficient use of the resources that we have available to us here. In terms of sustainability, we're tapping into recycled materials. So where before we were producing polypropylene, which is mostly virgin, with our own production waste put into that. In our pets, so it's PET with our recycled PET. All of that is, if you include the pre-consumer waste, we're up to something in the order of 70% recycled content. So there's very little or a far reduced level of virgin material going into the packs at all. The board that we use, we can use anything up to 100% recycled board. And as a matter of course, where we're using any form of new board, it is all sustainably forested board as well. So what we're offering is a heavily recycled pack up to 70 or 80%, potentially 100% if, if that's where you wanted to go, with up to 100% recycled board that is simple to separate and engages the consumer in the recycling process. You simply take the board from the plastic and away it goes for reuse again. And as the economy becomes more circular, we hope to get the plastic back so that we can reconvert it. When is the new system going to be up and running? I asked Andy that question this morning. Within the next week to 10 days, it will be up and away. We've got orders and we've got clients chomping at the bit for this product. You should be seeing produce in that new packaging shortly. Yes, it'll start to be filtering into the marketplace uh, within the, over the next few months. All right, great. Is there anything you wanted to add? We're majoring on recycled PET as one of the materials as a business. But the challenge remains that polypropylene remains a very, very good material fit for purpose. It's not the material's fault that it is ubiquitous in the world and in terms of its use. And that in itself is it's the challenge with regard to getting recycled content back into the system. I need to qualify that saying food grade recycled content back into the system. And because polypropylene is used in cars, in building, that's where the challenge comes. But we've engaged with a, an initiative called Next Loop, which is a multi-company organisation that is industry-wide looking at finding means of certifying mechanically recycled PP for food use. And we've signed up. We're part of the, if you like, the trialling process. So that organisation will be providing us with materials to test. We'll be providing feedback to them to make sure that they understand the properties of their material and that we hope very soon to be able to be in a position to be doing the right thing with polypropylene as well in addition to what we're doing with PET. And we will continue to engage with the wider industry to improve the circularity of what we do. We've also joined an organisation called Clean Sweep, 
the idea is that we focus in on the small bits of plastic that are a inevitable byproduct of what we do you know little small scrapes and, and bits of polymer that can come through the extrusion process or bits of dust or offcuts and the focus is to make sure that we avoid any of that accidentally ending up in the watercourse it's the attitude that goes towards that kind of attention in terms of waste and avoidance of waste and consideration of where our byproducts end up that is running through the business in terms of how we focus on sustainability and making sure that we are as responsible as we possibly can be with the resources that we have at our disposal. Now we're going to Perkin Elmer, which has launched its new FTIR liquid food testing platform, including instruments, software, and streamlined workflows. It's called the Lactoscope 300 system, and to tell us what it is and what it does is Wapka Boakama, Senior Manager R&D at Perkin Elmer. So I wonder if you could start with telling me a little bit about the latest additions to the portfolio at the company. Yeah, the latest addition that we did to the portfolio is what we call a Lactoscope 300, which is uh, obviously a dairy instrument. We have already uh, a name out there with Lactoscope. Uh, we have a Lactoscope FDA, but it also fits in the dairy industry. And of course, uh, late October, we uh, actually talked as well uh, on the IndyScope. So it's this instrument is actually right in the middle. Uh, so on the low end, we have the IndyScope, uh, and the top end is uh, what we call today the Lactoscope FDA. And the Lactoscope 300 is right in the middle there. So for dairy, what is it that the Lactoscope 300 does? It analyzes raw milk to begin with. Uh, and in that, uh, it's typically the chemical composition that we can analyze. On top of that, it also is able to uh, detect adulterants, various adulterants. And then next to that, it can also do cream, uh, whey products. So it's a more an advanced uh, instrument for the dairy industry. More versatile, I would say. What would the benefits be to companies using this compared to what's already on the market? The benefit with this type of instrument, uh, first of all, uh, it's, it's a bit smaller than uh, what is out there right now. It's a smaller footprint and there is always a fight for space in these labs, uh, in these busy uh, crowded labs. So that is one thing. Uh, next to that, and I think this is one of the biggest advantages, is that it has a similar interface as uh, the bigger instruments that we have. So one who already is familiar with the interface that we have on our Lactoscope FTA, they can easily start running this instrument as well without any training. So that's uh, really, uh, I think, a big benefit. They are familiar already with software. So And it, the same type of software is used also on our NIR platforms, uh, which you can also find in the, in the dairy industry. So I think that's a big advantage of this instrument. What kind of things will companies that use it be able to detect? It will detect uh, fat, protein, uh, lactose, uh, solids, solids, non-fat, so the, the chemical composition, various adulterants uh, where it can screen for as well. And also the whey products, uh, also a fat, protein, lactose, uh, the typical things that is done. Cream, uh, fat, protein, total solids. And the uh, adulterants is quite a list uh, that we have today. I will not name them all, but uh, amongst them is, of course, uh, water is one of them, which is uh, done by use of a freezing point uh, determination. Also urea, different sugars. Uh, so there's a, there's a whole list of uh, adulterants that it can uh, detect. And how quickly does it give results? It gives results in 45 seconds. Uh, you have a result, just place a sample, press a button, 
and then uh, yeah, 45 seconds later, you have your uh, results. So that's a pretty fast instrument. One of the biggest concerns, I guess, these days for a lot of companies is sustainability and cost. So does it help in terms of waste reduction? And, and I guess if you're reducing waste, then it's reducing cost as well. Yes, yeah, certainly that was a big part of the project to uh, to look at also uh, recyclability of parts. We had a target in the in the project to make sure that more than 80% of the instrument uh, can be recycled in a way, that uh, materials that we use can do that. Apart from that, uh, we reduced uh, quite uh, the volume that the instrument takes, uh, volume uh, also of the sample, but also of uh, of cleaning detergent. Uh, of course, uh, you do need to clean the instrument and the internal uh, liquid parts need to be cleaned. Uh, but that was reduced uh, dramatically uh, compared to our instruments. That's a big plus for uh, waste reduction. And I would imagine as well that if it's giving results quickly, then there's less downtime, which would also help. Yeah, we simplify the whole measurement as much as possible. Uh, and also the setup of the instrument uh, simplified a lot of things. Of course, we learned a lot in our previous project already of the Indiescope, uh, and we learned from that and, and took those learnings also into this instrument uh, again, uh, which is, I think, a, a big plus. Do those instruments work together, or are they...? You, you will find them in different places. Uh, the Indiescope was more for uh, collection points, uh, where farmers bring their milk uh, to certain collection points. This one is more for a processor, I would say. Uh, the small, uh, medium-sized processors uh, would benefit this type of instrument. Uh, and then typically for incoming inspection of their uh, raw materials, so raw milk, but also in the production, they can use it for uh, standardizing uh, their products. So typically what is done, they analyze uh, fat content and tune it to what they need in the market. So uh, that is where the, the instrument is used for a lot. And you mentioned the fact that it's got a smaller footprint and the software is similar and the look is similar. Is it easy to add into an existing system? Yeah, you can even find this type of instrument, a smaller one compared to the Lactoscope FTA. Uh, if uh, customers have already a Lactoscope FTA, they have most of the time multiple uh, points of where they uh, start analyzing samples. So they can use uh, this smaller instrument around in their factory at different locations, smaller labs. But then again, if they already know the, uh, the, the Lactoscope FTA, they can easily start working with this one as well. And is it easy to see the results and interpret them? They don't have to send them over to you for interpretation or anything? No, it's a standalone instrument. So all the results are handled inside the instrument itself. It has an onboard computer. It's Windows-based, actually. So the screen that you see in front of you is then a Windows-based system. The results will appear on the screen. It's a touchscreen operation. Uh, so a uh, large button, so you can easily uh, operate the instrument and also see the results uh, pretty easy. On top of that, it can actually store the results in a cloud system. We have what we call NetPlus. You can connect also to this instrument, which is able that you on, on a remote location, you can actually look at the instruments, uh, look at the results, change calibrations if needed. It's quite a versatile system already. Is it already being used in industry? I mean, I know it's relatively new, but is it already out there being used? We had it out there already late last year. Of course, we started working with some uh, key customers where we had it on site. We have shipped already uh, quite a few instruments around, uh, so people are using it already. Uh, we got quite some positive feedback, uh, which is, of course, great. 
but we learned already a lot uh, last year, late last year, when we started uh, installing the first instruments. The whole instrument is built to make life uh, of the user easier. I think that is what we tried to, uh, to achieve, and I think uh, we did a good job on that, uh, given the feedback that we have so far. And now it's to using HMOs, or human milk oligosaccharides, as potential treatments for chronic illnesses. To tell us about some of the work happening in the field is Dr. Ardith Morrow, who is Professor of Epidemiology and Pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Morrow co-directs MILK, which stands for Milk Microbiome Immunity and Lactation in Child Health, and Novel Therapeutics Lab. All right, so I wonder if we could start, if you could um, tell me about your work with MILK and the Novel Therapeutics Lab. Sure. I am a human milk researcher, and I have been for some decades. And during the years of many years and continuing research on human milk, the focus has been on child health and promotion of breastfeeding, which is critical, and understanding the variety of molecules in human milk. And then my colleagues and I, who are NIH-funded, really started focusing on one of the most abundant components of human milk, and that is the oligosaccharide fraction. So people who are human milk researchers sort of have a mantra, which is that human milk or mother's milk is medicine. And as our, we're doing research on the human milk oligosaccharides, I get, began to see how their application to child health could also mean potentially going in the direction of novel therapeutics of those molecules at older ages. So milk, you know, in this M-I-L-C-H lab means milk, microbiome, immunity, lactation, because we're very much for supporting breastfeeding, promotion, support, and then the C-H, child health. But again, as we did this research, we realized there's this novel therapeutic needs and possibilities that human milk could teach us some functionalities the world in general really needed because of the ongoing problems of health that I think that the oligosaccharides and other milk components potentially could contribute to improve. So that's why we named our lab uh, Milk and Novel Therapeutics. In the lab, along with me, is my colleague David Newberg, and there are several other faculty who have, have been recently joining us, and we have a team of postdocs and graduate students. This is at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and allied with Cincinnati Children's Hospital. You mentioned that you've been doing this for some time. It must have changed over the years, I would imagine, what, what you've been Oh, indeed. Doing. Oh, indeed. What was once kind of a, oh, isn't that interesting, and there were very few of us doing human milk bioactives research. Um, I came into the field <laughs> um, in the 90s. And, you know, there has been, of course, research in human milk starting in at least by and before the 1950s. Really, there are enough people, famous people now, who started off some of this research on human milk oligosaccharide, for example, in that 
era, but there were very few people and largely limited to Europe and the United States. And then after publication started coming out and this, you know, the ability for science labs to spread worldwide, now there's a global research initiative on, on human milk, not organized as a global initiative per se, but they're just labs all over the world that are doing research, particularly on human milk oligosaccharide. And the, and the functionalities that have been identified continue to increase and amazing depth of information now. I think before for people, you know, as you know, there was a time where breastfeeding was not even taken seriously in the Western world or in more so-called developed or, you know, high-income countries. Um, But now with all this research and seeing what, how much better the outcomes are for children, breastfeeding is taken seriously. And then looking at the bioactives of human milk is being taken seriously. So it, it's exciting, actually. There's a lot of um, publication and conferences and, you know, colleagues working on this. The initial ideas about the oligosaccharide fraction was understanding that it promoted the bifidobacteria. And that's still shown to be true. But now we understand much more that when that's happening, they're also good beneficial molecules that are being produced called, you know, so it has a prebiotic effect, meaning that it's not only increasing BIFs, but it's also producing a metab- metabolites in the gut that are healthy for the gut. But we've also found out that it can bind many pathogens. And we know that the diversity of human milk oligosaccharide, there's way more than 100 different human milk oligosaccharide, or I'll call it HMO molecules in milk. And each one of them is the major ones anywhere being seriously investigated. And we've learned how to synthesize them. And that's very important mm-hmm. if we're going to you know, be able to study them and then potentially to use them as therapeutics. And we found out other functionalities as well, you know, besides pathogen inhibition, improving microbial colonization. We've learned that the HMOs improve the gut barrier. So you've heard of leaky gut. This is a related that the idea of HMOs can help energize the gut cells and also close the zona occludens, really just bringing those cells more tightly together and improve or modulate immune response, so reduce inflammation. And more recent or ongoing work also shows that there can be benefits to brain health. So really, there's a tremendous amount of work. Our idea is that we can now begin to apply this to major diseases of our time that have to do with impaired gut health. So that's why the milk and novel therapeutics part of our our lab description. Sure, and there's a lot of other studies, not just on HMOs, but I mean, it was, there was just a study a couple of weeks ago about lactoferrin being potentially useful against COVID. So it's uh, yeah, that's yeah. true. Meaning, the human milk is full of it's about, I think, an estimate is about a thousand different distinct molecules of human milk, and there are these wonderful innate defense proteins such as lactoferrin, which is one of the leading ones, but there are others. But the reason why HMOs are really got my attention and my my colleagues is because of what they can 
do that's multifunctional, but really modulating the gut microbiota as well as, you know, an inhibiting pathogens such as SARS-CoV-2 or COVID. Anyway, it's, yeah, there's a lot of exciting research on human milk going on, and some of that is leading to important novel therapeutics. You mentioned how it's important for, for breastfeeding and breastfeeding sort of had that lull where it wasn't really taken as seriously as it should be. What is the role of HMOs in breastfeeding? Yeah, it's the third most abundant component of human milk. So first is lactose, second is the fats of human milk, and third are the human milk oligosaccharides as or more abundant than protein. So of course we would all agree that protein is critical for growth and development, but think of this as mother and mother nature having provided for the infant molecules that are as or more abundant than protein. So right off the bat, that kind of is an indication of its relative importance. What it's doing for the infant is really ancient. It's modulating the microbiota And it's interesting, in evolutionary biology, we found that the oligosaccharides actually predate milk itself, predate uh, mammals, but were found in crude secretions. And their function seems to be, again, enabling the growth of beneficial bacteria and blunting or inhibiting the uh, set of pathogens, many different pathogens. And then, again, improving the gut barrier. So... This is an important part of the maturation of the infant gut. And there are a number of studies showing that it just reduces inflammation because inflammation in a baby can be very problematic because of their immature immune system. So hyperinflammation can be very serious and significant, even potentially kill as in a preterm. So it's moderating that immune response. And then what we're finding most recently, you know, what is what do parents really want to make sure of is that their child's brain is healthy and good and growing. And this is probably why there's more oligosaccharide in human milk than in any other species. And I find that really, it's really fascinating that here we're tying together gut, brain, and immunity and really being able to live with our microbial world in a healthy way. So those are the main functions that were distilled down. In recent years, we've started adding more and more things to infant formula, which would include HMOs. Is that why they're used in formula? Yes. I mean, think of with all the things that are present or absent, if you knew what is the third most abundant component of mother's milk is entirely absent from formula, that that would be of concern. And it means that the interrelationship with the microbiota and the gut has changed. So yes, there is this movement towards using HMOs and infant formula, and it's, it's incremental. Part of the message, I think, from today is also that These molecules, just like anything in nature, can teach us about healing, about how to create a synergy between uh, the human body and our microbiota, how to optimize immune health. And in so learning, we find that, you know, it's possible now because of synthesizing these molecules to potentially test them in 
adults and older children. Because we have a global epidemic that's not just limited to the current terrible pandemic that we're all living through. But for some decades, we've been increasing in gut diseases and immune disorders of various kinds. And we haven't had good solutions for that. Like most people have heard of or have have or have friends who have inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome. These are two different conditions or have immune disorders of various kinds. And these are thought to really in many ways be a dysregulation of our microbiota. We use antibiotics that kill microbes, but we don't have a way to repair our microbial community. And our microbial communities are a critical part of our health. So if they're dysregulated and our immune system is dysregulated, we're going to see that in a variety of ways. And so what we're needing now is new solutions, and they have to be tested systematically. But I think, and have for some years, that human milk has a lot to teach about that. And of those things that seem particularly promising are the oligosaccharides. So we've begun testing or working with other people who are testing these oligosaccharides. And in two ways, one, yes, for their use in infant formula to improve how children who are not breastfed start off life, but also then at older ages and adults and so on for conditions like IBD or IBS. I'm also interested now in how this might help some of the gastrointestinal symptoms and behaviors of children with autism. You know, they also have immune dysregulation, GI problems. So, you know, people are seeking solutions and all of the therapeutics that we have really come out of nature as our inspiration or guide. And so, and Mother's Milk is a tremendous teacher about what could be. So that's why we've been pursuing that. The HMOs that you study and that we find in infant formula and that could potentially be used to treat conditions in the future, is that something that has to come from breast milk or can it be synthesized in a lab? So I'm glad you asked that because I forget to sometimes bring that up that, you know, mother's milk is so precious and so varied and so, you know, hard to come by that that must be so the province of babies. <laughs> and for any mother who has extra milk, that really ought to be going to preterm babies and we ought to be covering their needs worldwide. So just like everything else, like take vitamins, we have ways to synthesize those. We've learned how to synthesize human milk oligosaccharides, not all of them because it's a complex process, but now we can synthesize a number of them. And so that means we can offer those for testing because this needs to go through the same kind of process of testing that everything else does in the process of becoming a potential therapeutic. So to answer clearly, this is now in the range of synthetic molecules that are bioidentical to what's in human milk, and they can be measured as such. And that means they are now beginning to undergo testing for a variety of conditions. You mentioned some of those conditions earlier. How do they help treat some of those conditions? Ah, so some years ago when doing research on the oligosaccharides, I realized this list of the ways it's helping mother's milk and oligosaccharide in particular was important for 
babies was a match for my understanding, at least, of the issues involved in IBD and potentially IBS. And the research in those conditions has only gotten deeper, and that parallelism or has only gotten clearer. So, for example, the microbiota are dysregulated in those conditions. There's inflammation, and there's problems of, depending on which one you're talking about, let's talk about IBD for a moment, the microbial signature there is now well established and globally and there tends to be a lack of healthy organisms that are fermenting and producing these nice metabolites for the gut and there tends to be too many pathogens that are present it is a very strong inflammatory signature so the oligosaccharides are really well suited to address those things it's they're anti-inflammatory, they modulate the microbiota, they produce healthy beneficial metabolites. So that's fundamentals and also have properties of helping the gut barrier, which is often damaged in IBD. Also kind of modulating stooling. So with IBS, for example, there's this irregular stooling process and that can be really debilitating. It can be constipation, it can be diarrhea, it can be alternation. And the microbiota are, again, just not in harmony, if you could put it that way, with the individual. They're just dysregulated. So these are kind of common signatures that can be beneficial from oligosaccharide. You mentioned the components of milk and I guess it's still a very rapidly evolving field, the study of HMOs and Oh definitely. Yes, definitely. Because first of all, there's still a rapid, you know, development of understanding of of the variety of different oligosaccharides that there are. There are some lead molecules, and I could call them by name, but they may not have meaning to many of the listeners, but a major one is called 2-fucosolactose or 2-FL. There's another major one called 3-silolactose, but there are many other ones, LNT, LNEOT. They all have their own structures, and they have some commonalities of what they do, but they also have some differences of what they do. So we're really learning molecule by molecule, and then what happens when you put them in mixes. Okay, so there's that part of the learning. But also, really, can these molecules, either alone or in combination, be beneficial to people at older ages? And those studies are just starting. There is one publication in Healthy Adults, and it shows that it could be tolerated and they can uh, improve the colonization of bifidobacteria. There's a, a study that was published just in 2020 at the end of in December showing that if you give a couple of the human milk oligosaccharides together, you could potentially improve symptoms of IBS. But this is an open label trial, meaning it's not a randomized controlled trial, though as would be important for regulators and evidence-based medicine, but it was a nice indication that if you could give, in this case, they were giving five grams a day of this combination, they saw improved bowel habits and reduced symptoms and improved quality of life. And it was a 12-week trial. So this is a promising, but we're just at the beginning of doing all this kind of testing. 
And there's really a long road to go, but year by year we're learning a lot and there could be continued rapid increase in understanding. Where are we at in terms of the use of HMOs in treating diseases and what, what kind of timescale are we looking at? Yeah, so I think over the next couple of years, we will have a number of trials. And a few years after that, we may have the kind of approvals we would need. There is a trial that I'm involved with that is NIH-funded that is for dosing and IBD. There is a trial that is being developed for IBS. I am really eager to pursue studies in children with autism and in in long COVID because long COVID is another example of having immune dysregulation and gut-brain health problems. And it really is of great interest to me to see whether we might find that direction. But that's right now a little more exploratory. But I'm hopeful that over the next couple of years, we're really going to have some significant advancement and clinical trial evidence. What are you working on currently and where are you headed with all of this? Yeah, thank you for asking. So I am co-investigator on the trial in IBD, which is really for dosing. I'm providing or a scientific advisor for intrinsic medicine, which is working towards, say, the idea of human milk oligosaccharides as as novel therapeutics. I'm developing a, a trial on in children with autism. So that's going to take me probably until I'm <laughs> until I'm done. But I think it would be very promising, and I think it will also emphasize the importance for babies to get mother's milk as well. You know, because once we see that what's in mother's milk is that important that will, you know, help perhaps people recognize that, you know, we need to increase and encourage breastfeeding, but also learn from mother's milk itself, the bioactive components and say, okay, that's how it's done. So I would see this as just the beginning for other testing. Pretty exciting field to know that you're making a difference in potentially many people's lives in the future. Well, it's kept me going. Thank you for saying that because everybody needs encouragement in what they do. You know, I think it's great you having me on your program. I suppose I could have retired by now, but this is part of the unfinished business and a major focus for me to um, advance to make sure that it, this is really solidly evidenced so that, you know, people can be helped because worldwide, these gut and immune health problems are so rampant, so common. Like, of adults in the U.S. are estimated to have IBS. That's a lot of people. Some people really have this as a debilitating condition. So, yeah, I am motivated. And it it is inspiring. And I've got a great group to work with at Cincinnati. And now it's time to see what's happening in the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland over at StoneX. Hi, Jim. Um, the dairy markets continue again the last week or two on their very strong uh, path of, of increasing prices. Um, obviously, the developments in the Ukraine continue to be uh, the main underpinning uh, feature, uh, causing the very high feed and fertilizer costs, uh, which are you know driving more and more concern around milk collections. I mean, we're starting to look at... Uh, 
some continuation of, of pretty poor numbers across a lot of Europe. Um, we're estimating currently for February uh, German milk collections to be down about 0.7%. And we're estimating for France, the you know collections to be down around two point six percent, and and even the UK down uh, about two percent as well. So so pretty poor in terms of milk collections, um, and and really that's we're seeing that in lack of availability in, in most products in the market. Um, there is some signs of positivity. I mean, we've we've just got Polish milk collection numbers out for February, and, and there the market or the milk collections have been up three point eight percent. Um, and Italy as well is looking like it'll be up maybe something like 2% as well. So there is some signs of positivity there, but it, it hasn't really filtered through to prices yet. Um, we're really closely watching the demand developments. I mean, we at all-time record prices for a lot of commodities, we haven't really seen these high prices filter through to a lot of the end customers yet, and, and particularly not retail. Um, but we have heard in the last number of weeks of of retail contracts being confirmed uh, at significantly higher prices. So with the high inflation uh, hitting all households, basically, at the moment, we're, we're really keenly watching what impact this will have on the retail demand. Um, we, we expect it will start to have uh, a pretty quick negative impact in terms of sales as soon as these high prices do start to, to hit true, which which looks like it's going to be in the coming weeks. So this may help bring the market back into balance. Um, but in the meantime, the markets continue to, to creep up and um, hit all-time record highs. Butter's been trading up uh, above 7,400 euros per ton in some periods in 2022. Um, even the spot market, the, the quotations which are released every week, uh, which shows where the physical market's been trading in the prior week, was was, was out today and continues to grind up 2.6% this week for butter, uh, up at 69.42. And skim milk powder also up 1.9%. And, and, you know, across the board, basically everything is stronger. Um, so the only thing, there's two things that will solve these uh, higher prices. One is increased supply. Um, so the milk prices are starting to get up. Um, but still, I think farmers are still quite concerned about the immediate cost impacts that they're having. So it looks like the supply side would continue to be a challenge for the foreseeable future. And the demand side of the equation is is likely to start having a bit of an impact soon here. But so far, the market is still tight. There's still not enough availability of, of product uh, to meet the current demand. Um, and yeah, we just have to, to wait to see when these markets do start to come back into balance. Thanks, Charlie. Hopefully we'll talk to you again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another podcast. The next one will be in April because it's April Fool's Day on Friday. Not that that's something that I ever really take part in. I think many years ago it was just harmless fun, but now some people take it a bit too far. Friday is also the last day of school for the Easter holiday here in Scotland, and that means two weeks of YouTube videos, and the same videos repeated over and over. Actually, some of them are educational, so I can't be too down on it. It also means that I'm going to need to stock up on bagels and peanut butter. I do miss good bagels. Anyway, until next time, I hope you have a great week. Take care. Stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening.